0: This morning's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 15, verses 22 to 39. It's on page 1085 of the Blue Bibles and the chair racks. If you want to grab that and follow along, you're welcome to. We are, as I said in the announcements, taking three weeks, last week, this week, and next week, to look at three big questions of life that everyone asks. And there is probably no question that gets faster to the core message of Christianity than the question we're going to look at this week, and that is, what's wrong with the world and what makes it right? And I can't think of a better event to look at in the life of Jesus than this one that we're about to read about because it drives right to the heart of the problem with the world and it shows how Jesus acts radically and decisively to solve that problem. So let's read this text from Mark 15 and I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able while I read this and when I'm done reading, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Mark chapter 15 starting at verse 22 And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, you may know this from personal experience, but one of the most difficult health situations that a person can be in is when you're really sick and you don't know why. Right? When you're uncertain about the cause of certain symptoms you're experiencing. Now you know the symptoms are real. No doctor is denying that the symptoms are real, and yet they run test after test and everything is inconclusive. You're just referred from one specialist to another specialist, and you desperately want answers, but you get no answers. And all the while you still feel terrible. Now, what I'd like to suggest is that the human race is a bit like that kind of patient. We know we're sick can't deny the symptoms, but we're just running around trying to diagnose the cause, and we just keep bouncing from different doctor to different doctor. And my goal this morning is to look at some of the things that other doctors may be saying, talk about why they don't work, and then introduce you to the only true diagnosis and the only physician who can bring real healing. So two big headings under which we can group everything else. The first heading is an undeniable problem, and the second heading is a radical solution. We have an undeniable problem, and we are presented with a radical solution. Now, first, let's talk about the undeniable problem. In the early 1900s, uh, so the legend goes, uh, the London Times, the big newspaper in London, uh, mailed a simple question to uh, many prominent writers and intellectuals in, uh, in England and asked them to address the question, what's wrong with the world? And, of course, the answers they got back probably Varied, but let's think about it. What are some of the things that people might say today? What's wrong with the world? What's our core problem? Well, some might say it's a it's a lack of education. Others would say it's it's poor political leadership. Uh, Others would say it's it's failed morality. Others would say it's it's unjust social structures that need to be connected. And no one can deny that all those things exist. The real question is is are they what's at the root wrong with the world? Are they the root cause of what's happening, or are they just more evidence that it is, in fact, wrong? Now, let's just pick one of those things, for example. We could kind of go through all of them in, in, in one, at a, one at a time, but let's just pick one of those things that the, the world sometimes puts its finger on, say, this is what's wrong. If we could do this, then everything else would be solved, right? For example, a lack of education, ignorance, people say, a lack of knowledge, right? Is that what's at core wrong with the, the world, the root of all of our problems? Well, if that's true, then the solution to that would just be education, right? If your problem is a lack of education, then your solution is just we need more education. But is that true? Take, for example, one of the major problems of, uh, of, of things like um, uh, the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of drugs. And now let me be clear, it's very important to educate people about the negative effects of abusing alcohol, abusing drugs. But interestingly, very few people who are using destructive substances like this in an abusive way actually argue that what they're doing is good for them. They don't mount that argument, right? For most most people, knowledge is not the problem. Uh, You know Robert Downey Jr., the actor of Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man, more famous in recent years. Well, he's toned down um, his wild lifestyle a bit from the the 1990s, but back in 1999, he was standing before a judge uh, in what was just one of several drug-related arrests that he was facing, and he described his desire to use drugs like this. This is what he said. He said, Your Honor... It's like I have a loaded gun in my mouth and my finger's on the trigger, but I'm beginning to like the taste of the gun metal. That's a really scary image. You hear what he's saying? I have a loaded gun in my mouth, my finger's on the trigger, but I'm beginning to actually like the taste of it. That's a really scary image because for him it's not an issue of knowledge. In the midst of his drug use, he knew, figuratively speaking, that he was putting a loaded gun in his mouth. He knew that it was deadly. He knew that what he was doing could kill him, and yet he couldn't take it out. Why? Because he didn't know that his drug use was like a loaded gun? No, he knew. Because he didn't know that a loaded gun can kill you? No, he knew that too. He couldn't take it out because he was beginning to like the taste of what he was doing. In other words, in the midst of addiction, you don't become ignorant to the destruction that you're doing in the midst of your addiction, your inner desire, something on the inside of you is working against that knowledge. So much that you actually begin to enjoy the taste of what is killing you. Now, ignorance is a problem, but it is not the ultimate problem. It's not the root problem. So education therefore can't be the ultimate solution. We have to go back then to that London Times question that they asked the British intellectuals, what is wrong with the world? Now, it may li- just like the question may be fictional, it's, it's kind of hard to pin down, but the answer, this, to add to the legend, one of the recipients who supposedly got this question was the British intellectual and philosopher uh, G.K. Chesterton. And supposedly, Chesterton responded to this question with a very short note back to the London Times. He wrote, Dear Sir, regarding your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now, that may be a cute little quip, but Chesterton is actually on to something. If you want to get to the answer that everyone is looking for, you don't need to look to the outside, you actually need to look to the inside of yourself. Now, this is what others have observed as well. Forty years ago, in 1983, on the TV news program, 60 Minutes, still running, anybody still watch 60 Minutes? Mike Wallace, who was the anchor in 1983, uh, was doing a story on Adolf Eichmann. Uh, the evil Nazi mastermind behind the the Holocaust, the plot to kill millions of Jews in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Eichmann had been a fugitive for a number of years. He was eventually captured and he was put on trial in the early 1960s. And in this 60 Minutes segment in 1983, Mike Wallace did an interview uh, with Yehiel Denor. Yehiel Denor was a concentration camp survivor who had testified at Eichmann's trial in 1961. And Denor had become somewhat well-known because when DeNor, during the trial, walked into the courtroom, and this was caught on film at the time, he began to cry uncontrollably as he saw Eichmann, and he collapsed to the floor. Now, why did he do that? And this is what Wallace wanted to, to know. He wanted to understand. Was, Dunor, was he overcome with fear as he saw this man, right, by hatred, by, by terrible memories of the experience that flooded back as he, as he saw Eichmann? No, that wasn't it. Dinor told Mike Wallace, this is what he said, he said, I was afraid about myself. He said, I saw that I am capable of doing this. I am exactly like him. Isn't that interesting? Dinor broke down and collapsed when he saw Adolf Eichmann at his 1961 trial because this once powerful Eichmann was no longer costuming as some powerful deity with the the power of life and death. He was just simply dressed as an ordinary man. He just looked like an ordinary person. And that scared Yehel Right, Mike Wallace closed the segment and ended the segment by saying, Eichmann perhaps is in all of us. The Nobel Prize-winning author Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it like this. He said the same thing. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but rather the line between good and evil passes right through the center of every human heart. Now, I've been making the case from the observations of others in the world around us because I want you to see that the problem really is undeniable, but what G.K. Chesterton or Robert Downey Jr. or Noor or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, what they're all saying is only exactly what the Bible has said all along. This is exactly what we find in the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, thousands of years before any of these 20th century intellectuals. Notice the same thing, Jesus, Jeremiah said the same thing. He said that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And if you look at the teachings of Jesus himself, you see how he really expands on this idea, right? We're using the Gospel of Mark these three weeks to learn about how Christianity answers the big questions of life. Well, in Mark chapter 7, and you can turn there if you'd like, in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, Jesus enters into this heated debate. The issue in chapter 7 of Mark's gospel is this. They're talking about, they're arguing about the religious teachers of the day. What makes someone unclean? What makes them unacceptable in God's sight? And the the, the Jewish religious leaders, they were called Pharisees, very well-educated men in the Jewish law. They're blaming the external stuff, the stuff on the outside. It's It's the world around us that comes into us and pollutes us. You're unacceptable because of what you eat, because of what you touch, because of where you go. In other words, what's wrong with us is coming from the the outside. But then Jesus comes along and says that the problem is, no, 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 it's much more personal. Let me just read Mark 7, starting at verse 20. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Not what goes in, what comes out of a person. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's what Jesus said. What Jesus is saying is it doesn't come from the outside. It's not external forces acting on us. It's internal forces making their way out. Now, if all of this is true, we've got a big problem, an undeniable problem, which means that we desperately need a radical solution And Jesus makes the case, actually, for a radical solution uh, pretty graphically in Mark chapter 9. So if you're in Mark chapter 7, just turn two chapters over to Mark chapter 9, because starting in verse 43, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life, he says, crippled, than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye, he's like like tripling down now, right? (laughs) And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, there might be a little bit of hyperbole here, right? Kids, what's hyperbole, right? A little bit of overstatement? for a rhetorical effect to make a point there might be a little bit of hyperbole that but not not a lot actually all right this is what he's trying to say can you imagine a situation where it would be better to lose one hand than to keep it where it's better to lose one eye than to have two why is jesus using such extreme language here why is he being so so shocking so graphic because jesus knows this is why Because Jesus knows that if we reject God throughout our lives, and that's what sin is, saying to God, no thank you, I'll do things my way. Jesus knows that if we live with that kind of posture, if we reject Jesus and say, no thank you, I will be the Lord of my own life, I will be my own king, thank you very much, then God will be perfectly just to reject us. The punishment will fit the crime. It will be perfectly appropriate for him to say, is that what you want? Then the judgment is for you to get what you want. See, if the radical problem of our sin isn't dealt with, it will take us to hell. Now, in the 21st century, right, many people either just dismiss hell as a myth or we we joke about it, right? We joke that we'd much rather be in hell because all of our friends will be in hell too. It'll be much more fun, right? What's the the Billy Joel song? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Why, does he say? Because the sinners are much more fun, right? But Jesus talks a lot about hell. Here's the thing. And he didn't talk about it like it was a myth. He didn't talk about it like it was a metaphor for something. He talked about it as if it was real, because it is. And the way that he talked about it, there's no fun in hell. It's no place that we'd want to be. Because see, even in this broken world, even in this world where we see so much of the effects of sin and suffering... As terrible as that suffering can be, this world in which we live still retains the benefits of God's presence. Even those who reject God, who want nothing to do with Him, still in this life enjoy at least some sense of pleasure, some appreciation of beauty. They still get to enjoy a day of sunshine, right? All of those things still appreciated, known, and felt to some degree, but because all of these things, every bit of pleasure, every bit of love, every bit of of enjoyment that we have ultimately is sourced from God. If God is removed, if God's loving presence is completely removed from us, in other words, if He gives us what we're asking for in our sin, to be completely and totally left alone, then every shadow of pleasure and every shadow of beauty and every shadow of love is gone too. And that truly is what hell is. And that's what Jesus is warning about. Our sin is an undeniable problem. Unless we have a solution, a radical solution, it will lead us to an eternal separation from God. And that's why we read at the beginning this account of Jesus on on the cross. Because the clear answer of Christianity to the problem of sin is the cross. Now, we have to concede that sometimes the cross in our modern world, right, has a little bit of a PR problem in the, in the broader culture because we Christians, we put it everywhere, right? We put it all over stuff. We, you know, hang it around our necks, but we have to kind of admit, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but this would have been really odd to someone in the first century to be wearing an instrument of execution around your neck, right? Why do Christians do that? Well, it would have seemed pretty odd because death on a Roman cross was, was terribly shameful, I mean not to be too graphic but this is what they this is what they did when someone was crucified they were severely beaten almost to death and then affixed to a wooden beam and hoisted up into place vertically right so that they could die a slow excruciating death by asphyxiation they couldn't breathe slowly painfully right it was it was so graphic it was so terrible because it was meant to be a warning to anyone in the empire who would dare to revolt against Rome that this is what will happen to you. So that anyone who would, who, who would even think of crossing the Roman authorities would say, eh, that's not worth that. It, it was so horrific right? that, that, that even Roman citizens committed of, of other capital crimes, they could be executed, but they could not be crucified. And yet Christians make so much of the cross because if our problem is sin, then the cross is our only solution. Let's go back to the scripture reading from Mark 15. If you don't still have it in front of you, you can turn back there. Mark 15. This is Mark's account of Jesus' death on the cross. And so let's ask a question. How does any of this fix our problem? How does the cross fix the problem of our rebellion against God? Well, I want you to look at verse 33 first. Verse 33 says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, if you're moving too quickly, you might miss some of this. So we've got to slow down and talk about it, right? You've got darkness from 12 o'clock until 3 p.m. That's three hours of darkness. Now, it couldn't have been an eclipse. Solar eclipses, they last only about six minutes or so. This darkness lasted three hours. clearly something supernatural is going on here. And this is what it is. In the Bible, over and over again, light symbolizes God's love, God's presence, God's blessing. Darkness is a symbol of God's curse, God's judgment, his anger. So when Jesus dies and darkness comes down on the land, we know right away that God is angry. Now, the anger of God. We've got to talk about anger for for just a brief second. Because if we think of anger in our human terms, we might get the wrong idea. Because oftentimes we experience anger kind of as an uncontrolled, quick temper. Right, unreasonable reaction to something. We maybe sometimes think like that because we see that in ourselves or because we've experienced that from someone else, a parent or someone else in authority. But God's, God's anger is not like that. God's anger is never a fly-off-the-handle kind of a quick temper. God's anger is, here's, listen to this, it is his settled, controlled hostility to everything that is wrong. Right? God's never out of control and he's always just and right. But his anger is his settled controlled hostility toward all that is wrong and a god who cares about injustice about suffering about pain is right to be angry about sin if sin is the root cause of all those things and he would be right to punish it think about this for a second right why is god right to be angry about sin well if god is in fact perfect then what that means is that he is a god of he's a god of perfection he's a god of holiness of purity and it would be right for him to hate anything that is evil. And if he hates evil, then he grieves over, he is pained by, he gets angry at our sinful, selfish hearts and what they have done to this world. You see, his anger about sin should, to some degree, actually encourage us because it should matter to us that it matters to God. In other words, when God sees injustice in the world, when he sees suffering, when he sees children who are abused, when he sees the poor being oppressed, when he sees disease and death attack us, God sees it. And you know what? It makes him angry. And if you're honest, you want it to. Right? If God were just indifferent to evil, if he looked at these kinds of things from his big cosmic rocking chair and just kind of said, "eh," you would think a God like that is neither just nor good. No, he gets angry. Now, what I want you to see that, though, is, is while we need God to be angry, we need him to be just, we need him to be, uh, to, to be, to be holy in the way that he thinks about sin. On the other hand, we have a dilemma. Here's, here's the dilemma, right? Because if we need God to be angry at what's wrong with the world, but we are ultimately what's wrong with the world, then we have a problem. And that, of course, brings us back to, to Jesus, because in the death of Jesus, we see that God gets angry, but we see that Jesus is taking that anger upon himself. That's what the darkness is about. That's when, when what we see when we read that Jesus cries out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Now Jesus is certainly feeling physical pain here, but there's something more going on. There's something more than just the physical agony of crucifixion. There's a spiritual agony going on here. He is being forsaken by God. See, on the cross, it was Jesus that God was punishing. Now, if you were here last week, you say, "Wait a minute! Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait, wait a minute! Jesus was perfect. I thought. I thought you said he led a sinless life." Why would God be punishing him? Doesn't that seem wrong? Why would Jesus allow himself to be subjected to such an, an injustice? It seems so unfair. But Jesus does this. He allows himself to be subjected to the anger of God, not because there is a problem with him, but so that he can fix the problem with us. Right? Do you know what was happening on the cross? This is what was happening on the cross. I'd like you to pretend for a moment. If there's any doubt kind of in your mind as to whether or not you fall into the category of a, of a sinner or not, I want you to do this little mental exercise. Right? You know, you've, you've heard about like, these you know, high-profile intelligence leaks and things that are top secret, kind of find their way out onto the, the Internet. I want you to imagine for a second that, the, that a record of your entire life was leaked on the Internet. And I'm talking about everything. Everything you did, everything you've ever said, every thought you've ever thought, it's out there. It's out there online. Now, you might think that there's a couple of good things here and there that are pretty good that you wouldn't mind other people seeing, but there are a lot of things, if you're honest about that question, that are not so great. Things that you would not like the entire world to see, let alone, if you really think about it, the perfect God of the entire universe. Now, as a result, then, this online database that is now out there for everyone to see, it actually becomes the evidence against us. It is what condemns us. It's it's the proof of our guilt, right? This is the record of our debt, and it separates us from God. Now, this is what's happening on on the cross. What happens on the cross is that Jesus bears the consequence of our record. The record that condemns us as guilty, he on the cross is taking the consequences of that record upon himself. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's effectively saying, "Give that record to me." Right? Transfer all that data and put it under Jesus. When you look up Jesus online, put all that stuff, put it under put it under me. You see what he did? He copied our online database and he put it under his name. That's why Jesus cried out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" as he hung on the cross. It wasn't because his sin made him feel separated from God because the Bible tells us that he didn't have any. No, it was our sin that separated him from God. In those agonizing moments, Jesus was taking upon himself the consequences that our sin and everything that our condemning record deserves. Now, there's one more piece of it. Look at verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. Now, we talked about this a few months ago on Good Friday, but but does this seem, this little detail, doesn't this seem a little bit odd to kind of insert it at this point, unless you know what it's talking about? See, in the temple, there was a 30-foot-high curtain. And Mark is telling us that when Jesus died, this curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the purpose of the curtain in the temple was to divide the people from the place, the holy place. They called it the most holy place, the holy of holies where the presence of God resided in a special, concentrated way. And the curtain was kind of like a big, giant caution, do not enter sign. Right? It said loudly and clearly that it is impossible for sinful people like me, like you, to just casually walk into the presence of God. It was a curtain of protection from the holiness and the judgment of God against our rebellion and our sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, God ripped the curtain into from top to bottom. It's as if God were saying, come on in. And that's possible because it isn't simply on the cross that our record is going to Jesus' name. right? No, on the cross, the other thing that happens is that Jesus' record becomes ours. In other words, if you now do a Google search online, what will come up under your name is all of the perfect love, all of the perfect kindness, all of the perfect obedience Of the life of Jesus his perfect righteousness transferred to you his record is now our record and so when God looks at us we're accepted because he doesn't see our rebellious record he sees Jesus's perfect record so we now have free access into the presence of God that's what happened on the cross Jesus was dying as our substitute. He was being punished for our sin. He was giving us his perfection so that we can be rescued. That's why the cross is the defining symbol of Christianity. And that is how the problem of sin is solved. Now the question for us then becomes, how do you react to that? And we see a number of different reactions in this text. We don't have time to go through them all, but there is one reaction that's different. Mark records it for us in verse 39. It's the Roman centurion. Now, just to state the obvious, you don't get to be a Roman centurion, particularly on a task like this, if this was his duty assignment, without having seen a lot of people die. And yet, in verse 39, it's obvious that this centurion has never seen a man die like this. This is what Mark says, how he describes it. He says, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, the centurion said, truly this man... Was the Son of God. Now here's this guy, this centurion, who didn't come to work that day. And it was, it was just work. This is a job. Okay, who's on the list today? He didn't come to work that day like for some sort of show. He just came because it was his job. But he was absolutely stunned at what he found. He would have expected people to be dying that day. That was his job. But he said, I've never seen someone die like this. Truly, this man was the son of God. Now let this sink in and ask yourself, is a sacrifice like this something of which I'm worthy? And the answer, of course, is no. Am I willing then to make that confession on the basis of what I see and be absolutely amazed at what Jesus has done for us? The sacrifice on our behalf that we did not deserve. Now, I messed up last week. I messed up because I missed the opportunity to make the connection between the cultural commemoration of Memorial Day and what we celebrate every Sunday. Right, I should have made that connection. I should have done that in the announcements. So I should have prayed for it in the, in the pastoral prayer. But what a perfect opportunity in God's grace with this topic today and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a minute to acknowledge what I failed to acknowledge last week and see what we see here. Right, so let me close with this, with this illustration. Right, in September of 2006... Navy Petty Officer Michael Mansoor, a Navy SEAL, was in the city of Ramadi, Iraq. And he was there with three other SEALs and eight Iraqi army soldiers. And he was assigned to establish an overwatch position, a position in an upper room overlooking the street so that as troops moved across the street, they could provide cover. Now, immediately as they established this overwatch position, they began taking fire. The enemy had figured out where they were. And in the midst of all of the chaos, into the room was thrown... A fragmentation grenade. Now, in the, even despite all the chaos and the gunshots and the firing and things like that, Navy SEAL Michael Monsoor knew that the grenade was in the room because as it flew into the room it bounced off of his chest and landed on the floor in front of him. And without hesitation he dove on that grenade and he took the explosion. He died. But three other Navy SEALs and eight army Iraqi soldiers were saved. Now, here's what one of the surviving seals later said. He said, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, You cannot take my brothers. I will go in their stead. See, that's what Jesus did. Do not take them. I will go in their stead. But what I found most interesting is that in the investigation that followed about the incident, one of the most remarkable things that came to light was that when that grenade came in, and bounced off Mansoor's chest, he was standing next to the only exit in the room. Of everyone in the room, the investigation found, he was the only one who could have, if he had chosen, escaped the explosion. But he didn't. It's remarkable. Now take the story, this story that we're just talking about with Michael Mansoor, take it up a notch. Mansoor died to protect the innocent Jesus died to save the guilty. (laughs) Jesus died to save the ones who threw the grenade in the first place. The problem with the world is us. And daily we experience and we see the effects of it. But Jesus is the only human being who ever lived, who had a right to leave the room without suffering the consequences of it. Instead, he absorbed the blast. It's a radical solution to an undeniable problem, but it's the only one that will work, and it's exactly what we need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the goodness that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to celebrate that as we sing and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Bless us, Lord, as we come remembering the sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.